0: I mean, a lawyer getting killed in the Netherlands, it had never happened before. And it dawned on everybody that this was really, really uh, getting serious. They were attacks that really scared people. They realized that these guys were prepared to do anything to protect their drug trade.
1: I'm Nicola Tallant, and you're listening to Crime World. A podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's public enemy number one in the Netherlands where he now stands accused of multiple murders including the shocking assassination of a criminal lawyer representing a witness at his upcoming trial. During his brutal career in organised crime 43-year-old Ridouin Tajee joined forces with Daniel Kinahan's Irish Mafia, a Bosnian cartel and the Italian Drangheta Group to form a European cocaine super cartel still under investigation by numerous police forces. But who is Taji, And how did he go from street dealer to billionaire drug boss in a violent and brutal underworld? This week, I'm talking to Saskia Bellman, ...justice correspondent with The Telegraph newspaper... ...who will be reporting on his upcoming trial, known as Marengo... ...which is due to get underway in Amsterdam in the coming months. She tells me how Taji hid in the shadows... ...as he secretly made his way up the ranks of Europe's narco-elite. We talk about his gang's links to the Kinnaghan Mafia... ...and discuss how Taji and his ilk represent a new threat from organised crime on society. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. It's interesting to us to know about Riddle and Tajee. We've heard a lot of... um, Mention of him in connection with Daniel Kinahan, obviously, but we don't know that much about him. I think in Ireland, we have this idea of Amsterdam being all about canals and museums and coffee shops and being terribly. Cool bo- <laughs> absolutely, and terribly bohemian and cool. But like other cities, it has its problems underlying. And I think maybe is Ridwan Taji a guy that has come from areas you know, in the Netherlands that are rife with social deprivation and, and other issues? Is that, is that where he emerged from?
0: Not really. Um, he, he moved to the Netherlands from Morocco uh, when he was only three years old. Um, he had an older brother then, two sisters. And when they arrived in the Netherlands, uh, they moved to a small village near Utrecht, it's not really uh, a backward area, but uh, he did grow up to be, you know, a small-time criminal. Um, he was part of a gang that used that mentioned themselves bad boys. Uh, that was a gang of about 10, 20 uh, youngsters, mainly uh, from Moroccan origin. Um, they they uh, broke into houses, uh, they traded in weapons. Uh, he was convicted numerous times, between ninety two and 2000. Uh, but that was it. it, it uh, he was not a known drug trafficker. Uh, he was, you know, using hashish and dealing in it a, a little bit. But he was not a big criminal. He was just, you know, a small-time criminal back then. That's what the police thought.
1: So in other words, he kind of came from nowhere. He didn't emerge from an area of known criminals or from an area where there was existing gangs and all that. Um, He did, however, probably have something that is quite dangerous in, in gangland. He has, or he appears to have, a very highly functioning business mind. Yeah. He has.
0: He's intelligent, and he yeah. knew how to, you know, to to hide his activities. And I must say, it's it's also because the Dutch uh, police and the justice department were very much into catching uh, Willem Holleder, uh, a big time criminal here in the Netherlands. Uh, he was convicted uh, to a life sentence for numerous murders. And somehow they just didn't pay attention to what happened in the background. Uh, they did see the old members of Bad Boys driving around in more expensive cars all the time. But they had no idea what they were doing and how they got the money. Uh, and it, it wasn't until, I think, 2015 when his name popped up and the police all of a sudden realised that this small-time criminal probably grew out to be a big criminal. Um, He he was unknown until then. I mean, between 2000 and 2015, they lost track of him.
1: And Tajī would be 40, early 40s now, so he was somebody that was coming up, around those boom times. And we saw the same here in Ireland, the turn of the century. I suppose people had more money. There was a lot more travel. Um, you know, the two countries, Europe was becoming more and more eager to use drugs and to use cocaine. So they were that sort of young brat pack that did come up between 2000 uh, onwards. And... Um, I'll bring it back just a little bit to in the Netherlands to around the year 2012 when a series of murders start that police are investigating. They're, They're different because, am I right in saying they've used these Kalashnikov weapons, which are, you know, firing multiple bullets. And we've heard on previous podcasts how dangerous these are and they're being used in Mexico and they're really what are cranking up the death toll. But... Kalashnikov's been used on the streets of Amsterdam. Later, a mother is murdered in front of her children. There is the dismembered head of a victim left outside a coffee shop in Amsterdam. Serious narco stuff. So what's going on in those years and and what do the police believe is happening?
0: Well, the police didn't know what was happening. They were at a loss about what what was happening there. There were obviously rival groups that uh, murdered each other uh, in order to uh, to get the coke trade uh, back. Uh, in 2012, there was this serious shooting in Amsterdam where two members of a of a drug gang were um, were shot with Kalashnikovs. Um, they aimed at somebody else. He uh, escaped by jumping into the canal and hiding himself between two houseboats. They couldn't find him anymore. Uh, two police officers all, almost got shot as well by the, the guys that, um, that committed a murder uh, on their way to freedom. Um they had to, uh, the, the police uh, officers were riding motorbikes. They had to drop on the floor and hide themselves behind the motorbikes. Otherwise, they would have been dead, definitely. Uh, those guys were arrested. Um, They were sentenced to uh, to life imprisonment. They never said anything about the reasons for uh, the murders. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what we saw all the time. Whenever there was a murder, uh, there were People arrested. They never said anything. They were silent in court. They refused to answer questions. Uh, so the police was at a loss about what was going on. It was obvious that there were um, serious uh, fights being, uh, being fought on the on the Amsterdam streets and that it had something to do with drugs. But the police never knew who was behind it. Uh, and it was only until a couple of years later that the name of Rido Tahi showed up. In 2014, I think there was the murder of
1: a, a gang lord that they did know, Gwyneth Martha, um, mm-hmm. And following on from that, there was a murder in the south coast of Spain, um, yeah. Samir Bukharin, who's known as Scarface. Those two murders were serious, and they were both known as sort of leaders of, of rival Dutch-Moroccan gangs. So clearly there was a, a war over turf on the streets, yeah. but the police were getting very little intelligence. Is that the case within that sort of Dutch-Moroccan world? Are they Do they keep very tight? Is it very difficult for the police to get
0: intelligence out of that world? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, it wasn't until 2015 when they discovered uh, a warehouse where they found an enormous load of weapons, enough uh, to arm a little army, uh, when they realized uh, that... There was something going on. Well, they realized, obviously, there was something going on mm-hmm. earlier, but they didn't know how to um, find out who was behind it. Um, and this load of weapons panicked Ridwan Tahi. Uh, later on, they found chats um, with which those gangsters were communicating with each other with BlackBerry phones, pretty good privacy phones, they were called. Uh, And they were openly communicating about everything that happened on the streets of Amsterdam. But it wasn't until a couple of years later they found out. And what changed uh, the game very much is that there was this murder in uh, in, uh, Utrecht. Um, They killed the wrong guy. Uh, and that was um, for one of the, the gang members of Rido Montaghi a reason to switch to the justice department. So he reported to the police. He said, "I'm part of the gang of Rido Montaghi, and I want to tell you about what he's doing. I want to tell you." Uh, what all those murders we've seen in the past few years were about. uh, I can give you a lot of information and that changed the game dramatically. Mm. So one of
1: his own came forward and and basically told on him those guns belonged to him. And you had mentioned earlier the bad boys and that the police had seen members of this gang, the bad boys driving around in in better and better cars and obviously showing off, well, they were his gang. And by 2015, they realized that this unknown street dealer within 10 years had gone from selling hash on on street corners to becoming one of the biggest and most dangerous drug lords in the Netherlands and really in Europe. Exactly.
0: Yes, Somehow they managed to stay out of sight for a very long time. And it was really difficult for the police to to find out who was behind it. I mean, they could arrest people that committed murders, but they never knew exactly who ordered the murders uh, because Mm -hmm. those guys that committed the murders just kept silent. They refused to answer questions. Uh, They were more afraid of their... Uh, their big boss than they were of uh, the Justice Department. So they kept silent all the time. They still do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, in, in um, February
1: of 2016, we had our own um, sort of explosion of gang violence here in Dublin when uh, there was a, an attempt on the life of Daniel Kinnehan, the, the boss of the Kinahan organised crime gang in the Regency Hotel, a failed attempt that led to a very brutal street war and a number of murders here in Dublin. But amidst all that, in April of 2016, the Irish Guard raided a safe house in Dublin. And there they found a Dutch-Moroccan man by the name of Noafal Fassi, nicknamed yeah. The Belly. And it turned out he was one of Ridwan Taji's main lieutenants. And that really has sent us on a course for the past few years when we have realised how closely connected the Irish Mafia and the Dutch Mafia are. Um, Fassi was discovered, uh, we were told there was a surprise he was discovered, I would probably reckon that behind the scenes the uh, the Dutch and the Irish had started working together very closely on their investigations into organised crime. But tell me about him and, and what happened him. He was returned, I think, to the Netherlands.
0: He was um, first convicted to, to 18 years because he was uh, the guy that ordered a, a, a murder in Diemen, a small town near Amsterdam. Um, the attempt failed. Uh, he was hit seven times, but he survived. Um, so this, this was one attempt. But then a couple of years, in, in the same year, 2015, There was a murder in Almere. Um, It was an electrician, we thought, uh, but later he proved that to be a a well-known Iranian, a guy that uh, committed uh, the biggest bomb attack in Tehran, in Iran, uh, in the 80s, on uh, the headquarters of the Republican Party. Uh, 73 people got killed, um, among them four judges, four ministers, one uh, chief justice. Um, The guy was sentenced to life in Iran, but he fled to the Netherlands and led a life uh, without being noticed. He was just, you know, an electrician uh, living here with his family, um, not not noticed by anyone. Um, We've never been able to find out whether... Um, the Iranian government has been behind this uh, this murder. But the fact is, he was killed and uh, the belly was supposed to be behind that. Uh, and that was enough to sentence him to life. So he's he's serving a life imprisonment right now.
1: So it would be suspected that Taji possibly has links into the Iranian government and possibly was contracted to kill that guy who was living undercover in the Netherlands.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, it, it's almost obvious, but yes. they've never been able to prove to that. To prove that, right. Nonetheless, Fassi the
1: Belly was one of the most senior members of Taji's gang, and we know that he was being hidden in Dublin in a safe house linked to the Kinnahan cartel. So clearly they have very, very strong links there uh, between them. Now, we should say that in the year's between 2015 and uh, the Belly's trial, the the police had made a breakthrough, which was they had discovered the server of the PGP, Pretty Good Privacy phones in Canada. And between, uh, between international relations, they had managed to convince the Canadians to hand over the details of those servers, so as they could go through them. Not willy-nilly, but they could go through them to find if there was evidence that could be used uh, for these massive, big organised crime trials in 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 uh, the Netherlands. And it is this evidence, really, that will be used um, in the upcoming trial of Taji, because for years he remained a fugitive on the run, while ordering these murders, or suspected of ordering these murders in the Netherlands, they eventually caught up with him in Dubai in December of 2019 when he was arrested in a very high-profile arrest that was videoed by the Dubai police and the footage of it was streamed across the world. But tell me about his return to the Netherlands and that murder that happened shortly before it that really changed the landscape of, of maybe how your country looks upon organised crime and the threat of it.
0: You mean the murder of uh, who exactly? Because we have had so many murders they couldn't solve for years.
1: I think that murder of Dirk Wurstrom, the criminal lawyer, the man who was yeah, yeah, representing... Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Mm. It actually started earlier because uh, when one of his gang members, Nebel B, uh, decided to uh, to leave his organisation and go... Uh, to uh, the district attorney, the prosecutor's office. Um, He was presented as a crown witness in March, 2018. Um, Six days after that, his brother got killed. His brother had nothing to do with criminal activities whatsoever. Uh, Nebel Bay, the Crown Witness, warned the police numerous times that his family would be in danger if um, it would become known that he had crossed the line and gone over to the Justice Department. Uh, nevertheless, his brother was not protected. Um, he got killed six days after uh, it was known that Nebel Bay uh, Nebel B was a Crown Witness. And a year later, uh, the lawyer of this Crown Witness was killed. Uh, those were two killings we had never seen before that i mean a lawyer getting killed in the netherlands uh, it had never happened before and it um, dawned on everybody that this was really really uh, getting serious that uh, this organization uh, didn't uh, wasn't afraid of killing family members uh, of people they uh, they targeted um from those pretty good privacy phone uh, chats, they um, they realized that even children were in danger. Um, they uh, found chats in which uh, those criminals uh, talk to each other about everyone has to go to sleep, which means everyone has to be killed, even dogs, even kids. They didn't really mind um, who got killed as long as everybody that that, could be a possible threat to their drugs organization. Um, everyone should ha- should be killed. Uh, I think it's mainly um, the murder of Dirk Wiersen, the the lawyer of Neville Bay, that changed um, everything. Uh, from that moment on, judges in Holland were anonymous. The ones that treated those that that dealt with those cases, um, prosecutors had to stay anonymous. They got uh, they were guarded um and it's not just uh, prosecutors lawyers judges that were being threatened but also journalists um our uh, office was attacked of uh, the telegraph in amsterdam uh, there was a car uh, that uh, rammed uh, the front and um, uh, it was put on fire it caused an enormous damage no casualties but in, in, it caused enormous damage. There was uh, an office of, um, of um, a magazine, Panorama, that used to um, that write a lot about Tashi's organization as well, that was being attacked with a rocket launcher. So they were attacks that really scared um, people in uh, that were dealing with those criminal organizations. And they realized that these guys um, were prepared to do anything to protect their trade. So Taji remains
1: on the run and from his his uh you know his hideout as such uh, in in the United Arab Emirates it appears that he is launching attacks not only on his criminal rivals but on the very foundations of the state of the Netherlands. He is exactly. challenging the court system, he's challenging police, journalists, he is prepared to do absolutely anything to save his his uh to save what at that stage? he's It's 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 become ego at that stage. It's not about money, surely it's.
0: Well, it's both, I think it's mm. both ego and it's it's money because, of course, is, there's billions going round in the drug trade and he's one of the biggest. He was one of the biggest uh, trading in cocaine, working together with, as you mentioned, the Kinahan clan, but also with other groups that were all stationed in Dubai. Uh, they seem to be working together uh, in trading drugs, and at the same time trying to eliminate their uh, their adversaries. Yeah, my understanding of the situation is
1: that they came together at some point. Uh, well, it's not exactly clear when, but at some point around 2014, perhaps, and there was a merging of mobs from the Irish mafia under the umbrella organisation of the Kinnahans, the uh, an Italian. Mafia, uh, a Bosnian grouping and Tajiz Macro Mafia, as as we call them here. And the four together became a super cartel. Those details have been included in files held by the DEA and some of which have have been leaked. But uh, it appears they came together to join forces and their money. They could buy in bigger shipments of cocaine and they could... In that, in that way, stamp out their rivals. You know, you're the biggest, you're going to be the only one left standing, aren't you? A simple business model but a very, very scary and dangerous one. And obviously a meeting of minds um, that believed that they were bigger and untouchable. Um, now, while Daniel Kinahan remains in the United Arab Emirates, a free man, Ridwan Taji, things haven't worked out quite so well for him. I think... Um, As I said earlier, they eventually caught up with him in 2019 and he's been returned to the Netherlands now. uh, There is an upcoming trial, which is known as the Marengo trial. There's 17 suspects who are on trial in that case and Ridwan Taji will be the leader of that mob. You're covering that, Saskia. It sounds like it is going to be some journey into the underworld for you when, when it gets underway. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about how it's been held and the buildings and the security needed.
0: Yeah, well, that is a complication because of uh, COVID. Um, there is this um, building in Amsterdam. It's it's uh, well secured. It's used for big trials that need uh, to be um, um, guarded more than the usual trial. It's somewhere in a in an area that's very uh, at, at the, the edges of Amsterdam. Um, there there are just a few buildings around it, so it's really diff- it's really easy to um, to protect the building. Uh, on the other hand, it's not very big, and this is the biggest trial we've had so far. Uh, with 17 suspects, uh, 17 lawyers, uh, four judges, um, prosecutors, uh, guards. um, It's probably going to be too small. Uh, Usually it it wouldn't be too small when there would not be COVID. But because of COVID, it's really difficult to put so many people in this very small building. It's one of the reasons that uh, the trial is postponed it surprised us a little because you know the the trial is already uh in the in the preliminary stages um all the hearings have been in that same building um i think the court should have realized before uh before it had it, it was supposed to start in february um and all of a sudden about one or two weeks before the trial would start they realized that this building wasn't suitable not in this a situation with COVID. They could have known that, of course, a year ago, but they reacted rather late. So now it's supposed to start um, half March this month. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's going to, to start. Next week, we've got two preliminary hearings. We will hear more about what's going to happen after that. Um, I think they're also very optimistic about the um, when they are supposed to finish the case, uh, they say they uh, think they will end the case in um, half 22. I don't think so. I'm go- I think it's going to uh, last a lot longer. We know that lawyers are very crit- critical on those pretty good privacy chats because obviously uh, those chats, I mean, they they are very um, explicit. On the other hand, um The ones that chatted with each other used nicknames and lawyers keep telling us uh, this is not my client that's hiding behind that nickname. It's somebody else. Uh, So it's already taken a lot of preliminary hearings about those um, those chats. And I think it's going to take a lot of time. Uh, for the courts to, you know, define who is talking to who at a certain moment, whether it's enough to use as evidence in the case. Uh, And obviously we have suspects that are silent. They don't want to talk. Uh, They don't say anything. They refuse to answer questions and it's their legal rights, but it makes it a lot harder to um, define who
1: is to blame. And are they all tried together? Are they, you know, while it is, it's one trial, are they all in the dock together, all 17 of them, including Taji? Have you you seen
0: him? No, uh, we have seen a few suspects, but Taji hasn't shown himself yet. Uh, He's supposed to be there on the first day that the the trial actually starts, uh, but we still don't know when that will be. I don't expect him to be there uh, the coming week when the first two preliminary hearings um, are are, uh, starting up again. So we're all looking forward to the moment that we'll see him again for the first time because we've never seen him since I mean, as a youngster, we have, uh, obviously, we don't know how he looks now, um, whether he has changed. We don't know how he behaves. All we know is that um, during um, uh, the preparations of the trial, obviously, uh, the police tried to talk to him. He was not really interested. He he yawned a lot. He leaned back in his chair, um, refused to answer questions. He did want to to talk about football, but that was just about it.
1: Hmm. Sometimes, you know, laying eyes on these people who seem to be so all-powerful can be kind of disappointing as well, can't it? You know, you see this small little person in the dock who looks yes. nothing like what you imagine, but then, you know, monsters don't look like monsters, do they, in, in the <laughs> real world? They just look like ordinary people. Um, yeah, they
0: hardly ever look like monsters. The,
1: um, the other one I wanted to ask you about was the Chilean known as El Rico, Richard Eduardo Raquelma Vega. He also came on the radar here in Ireland because I understand that he was involved in a plot to break uh, the belly out of leash Prison as he was being held here awaiting extradition to the yep. Amster- to Amsterdam. All sounds like something from a crime drama, but nonetheless... Um, the Guardi were alerted to that plot and, uh, you know, they undid it before anything could happen. And I think the belly was removed by military aircraft from sent in from the Netherlands to make sure that nothing happened. But Elrico was arrested in Santiago um, sometime around 2016 or 2017. He's known as the most dangerous Chilean in the world. And mm-hmm. he appears to be one of Taji's right-hand men, also, he was the supplier from um, Central and South America of the drugs. And he was the guy, the fixer, who uh, was, was organising the shipments for them. Where is he? Is he involved in this Marengo trial or has he been tried separately?
0: He's been tried separately. His trial actually starts on Monday. Um, he is not um, uh, on trial yet uh, for murders, um, it's now mainly different uh, different uh, accusations he has to uh, defend himself for. But he is supposed to be a member of uh, of Taji's group, uh, and I think definitely uh, the prosecutors will prosecute him for murders in a later stage, uh, which means that he's probably uh, facing a life sentence as well, but not in this trial yet.
1: And again, the PGP, the information from those phones, I presume, is going to be used in that um yeah. in that trial of course this is all new evidence this is just i mean these pgp phones arrived very quickly have uh law enforcement has started to have success decrypting them now and they are being used in 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 a lot of cases but the evidence is new so it will be robustly defended and uh anybody standing trial is obviously going to do their damnedest to get that evidence thrown out um you know, so so obviously that will be be largely challenged. But um, what's it like going in and out of that course? I think it's known as the bunker, is it?
0: Yeah, it's right. Yeah. It looks like a bunker. It's, you know, just a square building. Uh, windows are closed. There are uh, everything is, is protected. Uh, there are helicopters in the air when you when you arrive there. There are uh, police officers with helmets and masked faces and um automatic rifles on their shoulders <laughs> guarding the place it's you know it's it's very weird it's not Dutch at all but obviously it is by now and it's um it's very it's hard to get in and it's also hard to get out so once you you're in you don't want to go out uh, for lunch or anything there's nothing there it's it's really uh, a very um a very, a very, uh, how it shall sounds, I say that? It sounds
1: like a prison or something in itself or akin to a yeah, prison. Yeah, it sort is. Of. It
0: looks a bit like a prison. Um, there has been, when one of the Dutch criminals, our biggest Dutch criminals was tried years ago, there was an attack on this building uh, with a rocket launcher. The building um, was hardly damaged, um, but still, you know, it's it's heavily guarded and it's um, it's a very sturdy building, but it's not very big. So, for a monster trial like Marengo, it's not not really suitable. And ha- what is the feeling
1: in the Netherlands about this growth of of gangland, of underworld crime? And it's it's obviously look, it's obvious to say things are getting worse all the time. Um, but is there a worry that you know, it is becoming, I did see some, some stories there in the last few years that there were warnings that, you know, it could be becoming a narco state. I don't think we're anywhere near that um, here in Europe because there's no such elements of corruption, certainly not to the same degree as there is in Mexico, etc. But when you see the kind of money that can be made in drugs and you look at the likes of Ridouin Tají and he is, within 10 years, becoming a billionaire from a guy mm. selling deals of hash on the side of the street. You have to realise the power that these, these criminals are wielding today. And, um, you know, what is the feeling in the Netherlands? Is there any way of, of over, you know, resourcing the policing? Or is there any solutions to try and curb the the, the growth of it?
0: Well, up until now, uh, no. I think it, it has been underestimated for a, for a long time. Um, so... With the police uh, and prosecution office, obviously they realize now that we're dealing with a very serious problem. We've got the big harbor in Holland, Rotterdam, uh, where loads and loads of drugs are coming in, uh, where people of the uh, that work in the harbor are being uh, paid to you know, close their eyes on, on loads of drugs coming in. Uh, there are numerous trials by now against corrupt uh, people working in the harbors, but we still haven't managed to uh, to stop those loads of drugs coming in. I think for the public, it's it's you know something that's happening far away, something they don't really have to do anything uh, with. Um, when you talk to the public, or when I I report on a on a case. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, as long as they kill each other, I don't really care. Let them kill each other. But the point is that sometimes wrong people are being killed. Not criminals uh, are falling victim through those gang wars. Um, a lot of people using drugs in the Netherlands should realize that they help uh, those people getting awfully rich. I mean, drug users don't want to know that, If they just use some ecstasy pills or cocaine during the weekend, they think, you know, it's just a pill. It's just a little bit of cocaine. It can't harm anyone. But they are harming people. Um, I mean, they should realize that the only reason why people like Riede van got so big is because they want to use drugs. And somehow that realization hasn't landed yet. Not uh, with the big public. I mean, the prosecution office realises it. The police realises it. We realise it. uh, But the big public doesn't realise it yet. It's just slowly corroding
1: society, really, as we as we know it. And it is it is certainly not anymore is is are the guns and the gun attacks just in the realms of the criminal underworld. They are more and more, you know, coming into the the legitimate world too. Um, Saskia thank you so much for your time today and to filling us in on what's happening we'd love to come back to you when this Marengo trial gets going and maybe even um, pop in and see how Elrico's getting on in his trial Um, best of luck with it and thank you very much you're welcome